So chapter 9 of the uh, book of Acts, and we'll do the first 30, 31 verses in chapter 9 as we learn about the apostle Paul. Paul was a brilliant scholar, uh, taught by a man by the name of Gamaliel who was infamous in his day. Uh, He was a man of strict religious zeal. Someone wrote that Paul not only had a keen mind, but compared to even the most educated of his day, he was brilliant, persuasive, dogmatic, and exceedingly successful. He practically had no peers and thought that he was running toward God, doing God's will. He would soon discover he was running from God, but no one can escape God's purpose for their lives, not even a murderous hater of Christians like Paul was. But Paul wrote one-fourth of the New Testament, 25% of the New Testament. Two-thirds of the book of Acts tells Paul's story. I get asked from time to time why he had two names. Is his name Saul or Paul? Did he change his name? Why do you have those two names? Well, even Jesus called him, as we'll see in a moment, Saul. But in Acts chapter 13, it says that uh, Paul, who used to be Saul, uh, who was called Saul, and from then on we see throughout the Bible that he's called Paul. It's not unusual for somebody like him or people and men in that day to have two names. One was his Hebrew name, and one he was a Roman citizen, so Saul and Paul. So it doesn't matter which name that you use because of, of that uh, commonality. But um, we need to start out uh, this morning with some context that will help us understand what is happening and what it really felt like uh, on that day on the Emmaus, uh, on the road to Damascus, I should say, that Paul was on. Uh, First, the context. Jesus has been uh, died on the cross. (laughs) He rose from the dead. He spent uh, well over a month teaching his disciples about what they're uh, supposed to do. He gave them a commission, uh, and his commission is in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And he told them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you, he's talking to his disciples, but it's still for us today, nevertheless, but you will receive power. That word power means the ability, the authority. Uh, When the Holy Spirit, who is God, comes on you, and you will be my witnesses right where you are in Jerusalem, that's where he's teaching, and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the very ends of Uh, the earth. And so what happened next was Jesus ascended back to heaven, and the Holy Spirit came, and uh, and Peter filled with the Spirit. Uh, That word filled, I like to use the word controlled, totally controlled by the Spirit of God, uh, preached the first sermon of the church. Thousands were saved and stayed in Jerusalem, ignoring the instruction of Acts 1-8, of Jesus to go really to the ends of the earth. We're to go where we are now, and then we're to, wherever we're going, we're to be telling other people in various ways about Jesus. So here is uh, Saul's part in all that happened. 
The first martyr of the church was a man named Stephen. His ministry was to the Hellenistic Jews. That's Greek-speaking Jews. And so everybody, the church has thousands at the sermon that Peter preached. Thousands were saved. They're building all kinds of house churches, mostly just around Jerusalem. They're not going anyplace. And Stephen's out trying to lead these Jews, Greek-speaking Jews uh, to a relationship with Jesus. And uh, so while this is going on, uh, he talks about the resurrection, Stephen does, and he tells them that Jesus was the Messiah, and the Jews that he was speaking to got so upset that it's, uh, it's in Acts chapter 7 that they dragged Stephen out of the city and began to stone him. And meanwhile, that means kill him, by the way. They would throw stones until he was totally unconscious, and they would just pile the stones up on top of him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, chapter 8, verse 1, it's on the screen. And Saul approved of their killing of Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all, except the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. But Saul began to destroy the church. He was the main reason uh, for the persecution. Saul began to destroy the church. And going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So what's happening here in the whole scheme of things in God's plan is that because of the persecution, they were forced to obey Acts 1.8, and they were going off to Damascus and all kinds of other places to get away from the terrible persecution that was going on, although the disciples, the original apostles, uh, stayed in Jerusalem uh, to sort of manage things from there. So here we have a church in terrible persecution. We have a murderous man, a murderous Pharisee uh, who is trying to get rid of Christians, uh, and uh, he's got all kinds of authority to do this. And so we start off in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, and it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest, that's Caiaphas in that day, and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus where there was a large Jewish population so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's what uh, Christians were, the, the whole movement was called, the way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This was a new way to live for God. And so he was looking for men or women that he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. He was going to bring them back to Jerusalem, men or women, and throw them in jail. And some would be killed. Now, it's obvious that Paul was not planning on meeting Jesus at any time. He did not believe Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, several Bible translations translate Paul's mindset against Christians with the words raging fury. 
when it came to persecuting Christians, Paul had, in a sense, lost his mind and simply wanted to wipe out this dangerous cult, this heresy called the way. Paul was acting like a wild beast out to mangle his prey, much like a lion would his prey. But the roaring lion is soon to become a lamb. This is the most famous conversion in church history. Luke thinks it is important enough to have it put in his book that he wrote, the book of Acts, three different times. Once here that we're studying and twice more in reporting Paul's testimony about becoming a follower of Jesus. And we'll see that as we go through this. If you had told anyone that Saul was going to be converted, they would have laughed you out of the room. There's no way anyone could have imagined that this dangerous man, this religious terrorist, could possibly ever become a Christian. So here's what happened, verse 3, chapter 9, in your Bibles. As he neared Damascus, that's Paul, on his journey, it's a 150-mile journey, would have taken them about a week to complete. He would have had some, uh, at least of the temple soldiers with him, uh, he would have had quite an entourage of people as he's going along, ready to drag Christians out of their home. And so as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly... A light from heaven flashed around him. We know it was about noon, and the light was brighter than the sun. Paul himself said that later. And in verse 4, it says that he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, we know, of course, here this morning that that was Jesus speaking. Uh, and to persecute God's people is to persecute is to persecute, uh, to persecute God's people, is to perse persecute Jesus. It's the same thing. He's the head of the church. And we're the bride in the way that in the biblical name for the church is the bride or the body of Christ. But Paul, he's a very religious man. He would have thought that this had something to do with God. And he asks the question in verse 5, who are you, Lord? The word Lord here could be just who are you, sir, but that's not the case. He really believed that God was meeting him in some powerful way. And so he says, who are you, Lord? And he goes on to say, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Verse 6, now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless, and they heard the sound, but did not see anyone. They, they've never, they've just, this, this was a violent man. Violent men like him don't just fall down and have this kind of weird experience. And so they, they had no idea what was going on. They didn't see anyone, and, uh, and even what they heard, they didn't understand. And in verse 8, it says, Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. He was blind. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. All through this chapter, there's these reversals. It's, there's so much irony in this chapter. John Stott wrote, He who had expected to enter Damascus in the fullness of his pride and prowess as a self-confident opponent of Christ was actually led into it, humbled and blinded 
a captive of the very Christ he had opposed. So he had seen the light of the glory of Christ, and he heard the voice of the living Jesus. And then it tells us in verse 9 that for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Three days of prayer and fasting. What would he have prayed? Well, his letters will give us many hints of that. But most of all, I expect he prayed for forgiveness and certainly spent time worshiping God for his newfound understanding about Jesus. I mean, this is turning everything in his brilliant mind around. Now, it, it's a little bit humorous to see what uh, liberal scholars and people say about this. Uh, some have said that Saul was overcome by sunstroke or an epileptic seizure. It's amazing to me what a non-belief will produce. When I was in my atheistic days and arguing with Christians, uh, I, I, can't, I, don't, I don't even want to tell you some of the things I come up with. Uh, the word fool is a good word for a non-believer. One man wrote a book trying to prove that Saul was a victim of brainwashing. Here's a quote from his book. After his acute stage of nervous excitement came total collapse, hallucinations, and an increased state of suggestibility. So he was, uh, he, he was so messed up now that people convinced him even against his will. He didn't know what he was doing about Jesus. But listen, no explanation can explain Paul's conversion other than God's wonderful forgiving grace. Paul, the pursuer and destroyer of Christians, was being pursued by the hound of heaven, by God himself, for the purpose of saving many who would respond to the gospel. Paul would have seen Jesus during his earthly ministry. He knew about the crucifixion. He was well aware of the claims of resurrection, but he didn't believe them. Here are Paul's words in the book of Acts about what happened on the road to Damascus that day. Uh, this is an interesting, it's in Acts chapter 26. I put it all on the screen in the New Living Translation, but you could turn to it if you want. It doesn't matter. In Acts chapter 26, uh, he's before King Agrippa. Paul's under arrest. King Agrippa literally holds Paul's life uh, in his hands. And so Paul is giving a defense. But Paul couldn't speak about Jesus without explaining the gospel. Here he is before a king and here's what he said. He said, I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priests, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison. And I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. What an evil man. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. And one day, I was on such a mission to Damascus, armed with the authority and commission of the leading priests. About noon, your majesty, he's, he's, he probably has a smile on his face, at noon, your majesty, as I was on the road, a light from heaven Brighter than the sun shone down on me and my companions, and we all fell down. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. 
Who are you, Lord? I asked. And the Lord replied, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get to your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. What a sentence that is. What a sentence. For I have appeared to you, Saul, murderer, against everything that I represent. I've appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. By the way, the word witness, many of you know this in the Greek, is pronounced like the word martyr, and that's certainly the case of Paul. So here's his commission. Tell people that you have seen me and tell them what I will show you in the future. And I will rescue you from both your own people, the Jewish people, and the Gentiles. <laughs> and yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles. Now, I can't exaggerate how disgusting that would be to a man like Paul who thought that Gentiles were dirty dogs, basically. But I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes, like, uh, it doesn't say this, like you just had your eyes open, so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. So here's Paul defending himself before this king, but basically all he's doing is telling the king the gospel. What a changed life we see here. A changed life is the ultimate proof of the reality of conversion. A matter of fact, here's what Paul says in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, Paul writes these words. The spirit you received, Paul's writing this to the churches in Rome, to us this morning, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received when you became a Christian brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. I love to think about adoption, adoption to sonship. Do you realize that we've been adopted into a new family, the family of God? Do you realize we have a father who is better than, I don't care how great a father you had, our father in heaven is better than any father on earth. But when I think about this, we have a lot of people in our church over the years who have adopted children. And it's not uncommon to have seen a picture on Facebook of a young child who's been in what they call the system for a long time and uh, to see some tears and smiles uh, as this child now has a new family, a family that's going to be a permanent family, a family that's going to care for him or her. And that's exactly what happens to us when we're adopted into the family of God. If anybody was a wayward person, the Apostle Paul was, he was adopted into God's family. Uh, he's our brother. And we all were wayward. We all were sinners. And we're adopted into God's family. And we receive the Holy Spirit when we become a Christian. We will learn from Paul's writings that conversion is giving up the lordship of our lives and allowing Jesus to move in and take charge. Or as someone wrote, conversion is a revolutionary change of government resulting in a radical change in behavior. Now, let's go back. Let's get back on the road to Damascus. So we got to get back on the road to Damascus. Paul has been led by hand into, a, into somebody's home. 
And in verse 10, back in your Bibles, in verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to Ananias in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord. Now, let's stop there and think for a minute. Notice the naturalness of the supernatural. Luke does not try to explain what is happening. It just happens. And Ananias, not an apostle, not a deacon, not an elder, just a Christian, ready to hear and respond to the voice of Jesus. And in verse 11, the Lord told Ananias, go to the house of Judas on straight street. That's still, by the way, the main east-west street in Damascus. And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Now, you all know that I like to always think of the Bible through the lens of a movie producer. I still haven't been offered a job as one yet, but that's what I'd really like to do. Um, if we were watching the movie, the music would change here. Soon as you heard the words Tarsus, from Tarsus named Saul, the music would have changed. It would have been ominous, something you'd almost feel like something bad's probably going to happen here. Tension. And in verse 12, God says to Ananias, in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now, Ananias at this point has to be just beside himself. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority for the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. I mean, he'd heard about him. He probably, people in Damascus were already hiding away and hiding in people's homes or going on to other places because Paul was coming and they didn't want to be around wherever Paul was. But the Lord said, verse 15, to Ananias, go. I want to stop there. Go. That's the Great Commission, by the way. The end of Matthew chapter 28, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I've taught you and so on. We do that well here at our church around the world. Go. And it's a powerful admonition. It means that it doesn't mean that we're all to sell everything and go on the mission field. Some people will, but most of us won't. So the idea is, as you're going about your day, as you're going to work, as you're going on your vacations, as you're, wherever you're going, when you're going, you're going as a representative of our Father in heaven, of Jesus Christ, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he just simply says in verse 15 to Ananias, who has to be at this point just under terrible tension, he says, go, this man, Paul, who you're so afraid of, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name before the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And then verse 16 is really important, and we'll spend some time on it near the end of the sermon. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And I love what happens next. It just simply says three words, then Ananias went. 
It's so much easier on us if we'll have immediate obedience, even when sometimes it doesn't seem like that's the way we should go. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. He still had to be like, really, here's this guy he can't even see, and there's people all around him. He places his hands on Saul, and he said, Brother Saul, that's incredible that he said that. Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I I'm, hope we all know that when you become a Christian, the moment you do become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit. He comes into your life. The Holy Spirit is God. He's our helper, our comforter, the one who gives us the ability to live uh, a holy life. Holy meaning set apart for God. But at this point, we hear no more of Ananias. But we should never forget him. He was the man whom God used to repeat the commission that Paul had heard on the road to Damascus. He was the first to call Paul a brother. He was Paul's first friend in Christ. Saul's conversion should remind us never to write anyone off as being beyond the love of Christ. If this religious terrorist, this murderer of Christians can be saved, then nobody is beyond God's saving grace. And this should give an edge of excitement to our witness. God can reach anyone. Well, here's what happened, verse 18. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. As soon as I read that, I can think, I was blind, but I can see. Uh, he, he got up and was baptized. He knew what the habit of Christians were, and it was baptism was a big deal in, in uh, Judaism also. Baptism doesn't save you, but it's a step of faith that you take after you're saved. And after taking some food, because three days, he hadn't eaten for three days, he regained his strength. And then it says, to begin with, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. It amazes me that he could even find Christians that would talk to him. Uh, that they were taking a great chance also. Now, what you should know is that the next three years of Saul's life were spent in Arabia so he could think through the things that he had learned uh, in this event. Finally, And then finally, he returns to Jerusalem where he meets the apostle Peter. Paul writes about it in the book of Galatians. Uh, he's writing, uh, the book of Galatians was written to an area called Galatia, to all kinds of churches. And so as he wrote his letter, he was familiarizing everybody with what had happened to him. And, and I like what he said here. He says in Galatians 1.15, But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal a son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now, I, I just let's think about this for a moment. When God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, Paul understood the scriptures extremely well from what we call Genesis to Malachi. Uh, he knew most of them by heart. 
And he understood God's sovereignty and God's purposes. And he understood that God had a purpose for him. It turns out to be different than he thought, but he had a purpose from him from his mother's womb. By the way, that's the same for all of us. I, I know this is not easy to understand sometimes, but it, it should give us confidence. God can't learn. Do you know that? He already knows everything. He, he, he's, his actions are contingent on our decisions. He's not sort of looking ahead and thinking, oh, I wonder if Pastor Carl's going to get up this morning and he's going to preach or do I have to find somebody else? He already knew I was going to be here, even though I might not have been sure of it, but he knew it. And so uh, some people say, a modern philosopher would say, well, if that was true, then he's controlling your life. No, he's not. He's God. We have the, what I call this terrible freedom. We can mess up, and then he'll turn all that to good, our good and his glory. And so we all need to realize that God has a plan. He really does have a plan for our life, and we should relax and just let him work through us. And, and difficulties are opportunities. And if we don't see them that way, then we're just going to get messed up all the time. I know I'm not good at it sometimes. So he goes on to say here that God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal a son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem at that time to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas. That's another name for Peter. And stayed with him 15 days. Oh, I would have loved to have been there. And I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. They grew up together, Jesus and James. And I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. He's preparing them for his uh, visit. But back to Ananias and Paul's immediate conversion. We, we need to get back there again. So let, let's see if we can change our mindset, and we'll go right back to verse 20 in chapter 9. So at once, Paul began to preach, remember where he is, in the synagogues of Damascus, that Jesus is the Son of God. It was common in a in a synagogue service for uh, someone, and everybody would know who Paul was especially, uh, to be able to come up and teach. And uh, so here you have like the apostle Paul. For me, it'd be like Chuck Swindoll visited the church today. I'd be saying, come on up here. <laughs> and then he gets up and he begins to preach that Jesus is the Son of God. And in verse 21, it says, all those who heard him were astonished. I would have translated the word staggered and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name, meaning Jesus? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul, verse 22 says, grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. 
So Paul had come with papers from the Jewish high priest to go to the synagogues and arrest Christians, but now he was coming with a mandate from Jesus, the real high priest of heaven, to prove that the Messiah has come and that Jesus is that Messiah. What an amazing turnaround. And then verse 23, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. Now, that's an ironic twist. Verse 24, but Saul learned of their plan, and day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night. Paul's now got followers. And lowered him in a basket through the opening in a wall, in the wall. Now, Saul is greatly humbled here. He came breathing fire, and he leaves hiding in a basket, needing the help of those he came to destroy. God humbles his mightiest servants so they will not be destroyed by pride. God could have delivered him miraculously, but chose to deliver him in indignity. And this then forced Paul to proceed on to Jerusalem. And so look at verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem... He tried to join the disciples, but they're all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. I understand that. They reacted the same way Ananias did and did not trust the rumor about his conversion. They should be afraid of him. They knew Stephen personally. This was a terrible thing. This man, they didn't want anything to do with him. But then in verse 27, we meet another amazing person by the name of Barnabas. And it says, but Barnabas, which means the word, his name means son of encouragement. He was an encourager, took Paul and brought him to the apostles. Now, we have to stop and think about this. I mean, he just didn't go over and say, hey, Paul, come with me. I'm going to take you to the apostles. No, that's not what happened. Barnabas was a man of great means. And when you study him, I'm reading a book about him right now, the whole book written about Barnabas, uh, there's so little written about him, but we know enough about the culture to know that he was a wealthy man who sold everything and gave it to the apostles. And he was a man of great discernment and understanding. And he was a humble man who humbled himself as a servant to the apostles. And so uh, Barnabas would have been greatly respected among the apostles. And so he got together with Paul sat down with him and talked through all that had happened to him. I don't know how long that took. It probably took at least the good part of a day before he then brought him to the apostles. And so Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Ananias was Paul's friend in Damascus, and now Barnabas was the needed friend in Jerusalem. Verse 28, so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And then we have verse 29. Now, this is amazing. Verse 29. I mean, really something. Remember Stephen? Who was Stephen ministering to? The Hellenized Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews. What did they do? They stoned him to death. Who was there? Paul was. He approved of it. So now he goes back to that ministry. And in verse 29, he says, he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. 
the ministry that had gotten Stephen killed. But they tried to kill Paul. And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. That would have been a boat trip that he went on now. Now, Tarsus was one of the three leading centers of learning in the world. Its schools were devoted to philosophy, rhetoric, and law. We would call it a university city today. Paul thought that surely he should be witnessing to the Jews, but God had another idea and literally chased him away to the Gentiles. Uh, Paul talks about all of this uh, in Acts chapter uh, 22. What's happening here is that uh, Paul had caused a riot and the Jews and others, were, they were trying to kill him. And the Roman soldiers pulled Paul out of the riot. And uh, he let them know that he was a Roman citizen, all this kind of stuff. And so he started talking to them. And, uh, and so here's what he had to say to these men who had just saved his life in Acts twenty two seventeen. He says, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick the Lord said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Well, that was obvious. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of the martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So now Paul spent between seven and ten years, some, some think longer than that, in Tarsus, in relative obscurity. This was Saul, Paul's seminary. He needed time to piece together the Hebrew Scriptures he knew so well with the teachings of the church. When we study Paul's writings to Timothy will emphasize 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. These verses underline Paul's understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures for us today. So writing to his protege Timothy, his disciple Timothy, I call him Pastor Timothy, Paul wrote all Scripture, and then when Paul's writing this, all Scripture means the Hebrew Scriptures. Oh, his letters are around, but it's the Hebrew Scriptures. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. So it's inspired by God, and it's useful for teaching. That's what I'm doing right now. Rebuking, sometimes. That happens from the pulpit here, too. Correcting and training in righteousness so that we were servants of God, every single one of us. The servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why we gather together for times of teaching. And if you want to grow as a Christian, you must make the Word of God, the New Testament, Greek Scriptures, Old Testament, Hebrew Scriptures, top priority in your life. I mentioned that Jesus said through Ananias to Saul or Paul, who became an apostle, that he would suffer much for the sake of the gospel. Personally, the Christian books I have read that have had the biggest impact on my life have been written by authors who suffered much in their lives. Presently, Tim Keller, who was battling cancer, wrote a book about forgiveness. It's an incredible book. 
Here's a man who's been given a dangerous diagnosis and was told he had very little time left to live. And what does he do? Uh, He's writing books that are just powerful books to read. Or what about Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, who has lived her long life in a wheelchair, completely paralyzed after diving into the Chesapeake Bay when she was just a teenager. She's almost exactly the same age as I am, and her worldwide ministry is absolutely amazing. Read, you should read the book in forgiveness, but read any of her books. Just go on Amazon and look at the list. Choose any one, you will not be disappointed. Or every Christian, it should be, to be a Christian, you should have to read it. Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it's gripping stories of those in Christian history martyred because of the gospel. Now, personally, I would prefer to learn how to live the Christian life without being paralyzed, burned at the stake, or suffering from a medical condition or jailed unfairly. But as we study Paul's writings, we'll be learning from one who knew what it was like to be persecuted while remaining faithful and full of joy. The book of Philippians, written by Paul while he was chained to a Roman guard under house arrest, is the most joyful book you'll ever read. The Corinthian letters that we'll start with next week will cause us to examine our lives and adjust to Paul's exhortations regarding morality and worship. Ephesians will teach us how to resist temptation and fight the devil's schemes as we learn how blessed we are to have been called by God. One of the most important lessons we will learn by studying the writings of Paul is the power and usefulness, yes, I said usefulness, of suffering. Now, that may seem strange to our ears, but no athlete ever accomplished stardom without suffering. No soldier was given a medal without suffering. I have learned from Paul's writings that the suffering God may allow in my life can be the catalyst for significant spiritual growth. The joy of a newborn baby comes out of the suffering of childbirth. So here's Paul's testimony about his suffering. It's, in a sense, almost hard to read. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to this. I put it all on the screen. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, and by by the way, here's what was happening. There were some Jews who claimed to be Christians, probably not, who were boasting about uh, all they knew about the Scriptures and all they knew and and their, their ancestry and all that. Paul was pretty upset at them. So he says, whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. So are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. He cared about the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? I must, if I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. 
the Father, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. I mean, I, I almost decided not to read all that, but it's incredible. How can anybody persevere through all that and write some of the most profound, loving, joyful, challenging letters ever written about how to live for God in anticipation of the reward of an eternal heaven? And the answer to that will come week by week as we study and conform to the writings of the Apostle Paul. Last verse, and we're done. Verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, notice the church is on the go, enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord. The word living is a significant word. It's how we live our lives. And the fear of the Lord. I, I always struggle with this because I want to get it so you really understand it. What is the fear of the Lord? Here's one way to think about it. The fear of the Lord is my desire. I want God to be proud of me. It's my desire not to disappoint God because he's done so much for me. He sent Jesus to save me. He sent the Holy Spirit to empower me. He loved the world. He loved me. And so if we'll live with that view of God and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, that means empowered by the Holy Spirit, the church increased in Numbers, the Greek language pictures multiplication, really increased in numbers. So here we have a spirit-filled, obedient church. Now, we know that we're the church, so we could say it this way. We have a spirit-filled, obedient group of Christians reaching the lost and teaching the word. And finally, Ananias, Barnabas, a fisherman named Peter, a scholar named Paul, all prove that in the service of Christ, no one is indispensable. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you will inspire us again and again, even though that many here, Father, even most have heard sermons on the whole Bible, anybody that's been here for a good length of time. But Father, every time we come to your word, we find new things and we find new admonitions from you and we're inspired to live lives living in the fear of the Lord because we really want you, Father, to guide us through life in any way that that would be to our benefit and your glory, even if it included suffering. And Father, you've been very kind to us here in our church, uh, but our country needs us, our world needs us, it seems everybody has forgotten God in these days. So, Father, help us to remind people about God, about the gospel of Jesus Christ, about the good news of salvation. And then, Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that has never given their lives to Jesus Christ, that they would just simply pray that prayer. If they're here, if they're online, they're, they probably already have heard the gospel, but maybe never responded. And I beg you, if you're here or you're online and you're listening to this, that you don't wait another second. You just simply pray, dear, dear God, I know I'm not perfect. I guess, I guess I'm a sinner. I am, yes, I agree. 
Thank you for sending your son to die for me, to raise from the dead. Fill me with your spirit and help me to grow as a Christian as I can go to live forever now. In Jesus' name, amen.